0: Let's pray together, Father. In this letter that you have kept for us over so many years, we're grateful for the way that you have re-instructed, for the way that you have re-warmed, the way that you have re-softened, the way that you have once again re-enlivened our hearts to be able to hear your truth. And Father, we are in a series of commands in this passage. And Lord, despite everything that we've heard, we recognize our own heart's tendency when we come to this. We have what we could interpret as rules before us that could rank us, and that could reestablish our rightness before you. And yet, Lord, we want to reject that tendency. We want to push hard against the tendency that we would take what you've called us to do and turn it into how we stand before you. Father, today that's not our only um, weakness. It's not the only pitfall before us. There are a number of other things that we have been praying for as a church. And Lord, broadly, we recognize in so many of us the similarity we had to the the week that Mike had. That sense, Lord, that this is dark, that the world is getting colder and grayer. And we want your joy, we want your hope to gird us And then, Lord, to flow from us. And we recognize, Lord, that this letter you've had us in ultimately produces that through us. And so I pray, once again, would we hear your word? Would those that are struggling, those that are lonely, those that have been sad, may they find hope and joy in what Jesus has done. Or then from that point, may we be different. May the faith that we want to please you with be strengthened through this time. May we see what we get to believe about you and may we believe it more robustly, Lord. We believe, but we ask that you would help our unbelief. And then, Lord, lastly, we ask that you use us. We pray that preparing us with these truths, correcting us with these truths, you would then launch us into a world that desperately needs to understand that truth has come and that it still exists despite what they hear around them. These are grand requests. We cannot accomplish this without your spirit. And so I pray, be at work among us now in Jesus' name. Amen. We were having an odd conversation in the Lander family a little while ago, and it had to do with dreams, not just dreams nor the interpretation of dreams, but more the timing of dreams. Have you ever had this, this moment when you recognize that one of your dreams was tied to a circumstance that was so it felt like simultaneous with the experience of your dream. Let me give you the example that, that has come to my mind. Um, And it was when we were talking about these things and I realized I kind of had to humble myself before the kids and tell them about my Wolverine dream. Now I don't know if this had to do with OSU and Michigan and everything that's been going on in college football lately, but I found myself at odds with a Wolverine. In my dream, and there was a large backstory to this dream, a Wolverine was coming to attack me. He was standing like right on my chest And I woke up when I, when he was growling at me, it was that growling moment that just terrified me because he was upon me. He was right there and I, I, there was nothing I could do, right? Just so you know, this didn't happen in real life. This was my dream. But like in every dream, when you look back on it, there's something that you just, you, you first have to ask, like, how did that seem reasonable to me? I've never seen a wolverine in my life. And yet there was nothing to separate me from reality except for the fact that I was startled by his growl right there in front of me. Until I recognized that what had actually woken me up in real life was that I started to snore. And something about the timing of that doesn't make any sense to me. Have you ever had that moment when you've thought about one of your dreams where you the alarm clock is going off but something about the alarm clock get incorporated into your dream and yet the problem is that that dream had what seemed like 15 minutes of a backstory and you were believing that backstory and it's just, you're processing, how did those 15 minutes of my dream get to intersect with the fact that my brain knew when the alarm clock was gonna go off? How did my brain know to... Tell me this whole story and bring me into this Wolverine-like terror because it knew that I was going to snore. But then when you back it up, you realize, well, my brain did amazing amounts of work, apparently without my permission. And it did it in a second. It made sense of a snore. And it's one of those chicken and egg kind of things where you're asking yourself, what came first? Did I snore because of the Wolverine? And my body was like, well, we need a realistic soundtrack, so come on, bring it out, buddy. Or was my brain trying to interpret my snoring? It was just, these are weird moments. That's what walking with the Spirit is like in Galatians. You wondered where I was going to go with that, right? Right? Here's what I told you last week. Here's what we saw last week as we made our way through Galatians chapter 5. We heard two very real, not this, but this, evidences of what it would mean if you were obeying the two commands. The two commands, if you remember, were not be loving, joyful, peaceful, and patient. That's not the way that if... that. Maybe I'm just ready for Ephesians. I don't know. I'm ready to be out of Galatians, but that's not the way the Galatians 5 was structured. Do you remember that? There were commands, and the commands bracketed our text and helped us to move up this mountain till we got to the peak. And at the peak of it, what we had were descriptions of people obeying the commands. Do you remember the commands? Walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Those were the commands. And here's what I desperately wanted last week. What I desperately wanted was, okay, so what does it look like to walk with the Spirit? And you might have wanted that from me too. Okay, this is a metaphor, Darren. The metaphor doesn't give me a specific thing to do. The Spirit is invisible. How do I know that I'm keeping in step with Him? If I were to say, keep in step with me as I walk down, you might do that. Okay, okay left right thing that you've done sometime with your parents if you're one of those people like I was sometimes it just bothers me when we're not all kind of walking and in, in step together I can do that with a real person but the reality of the Holy Spirit's work much like all of the things that the, that the Lord teaches us through Scripture are more real than our material reality and yet make less sense because they're not material walking with the Spirit feels that way so you might have wanted last week, how do I do this? And I could have told you things to do, right? Here's how you know you're walking with the Spirit, if you're doing this, or if you're doing this, or if you're doing this. And then you might have asked, well, Darren, you usually try to tie your commands to the text, and how come the text doesn't have those commands? And I would have said, you got me. Because I feel like that's the tension that the passage leaves us with. And for me, it's much like that dream. What is God? going on. I see the connection between this wolverine and my snoring. I feel the connection between what happened in my dream and what's happening in reality. And I can't really quite tell the causal relationship between the two of them. What was was happening, but I know that they're connected. That's what we got with the works of the flesh and the deeds of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit. Right? The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. These may, as we mentioned last week, make for great soap operas, make for great movies that are going to sell a lot of tickets, but they don't make for good friendships. They don't make for good family dynamics. They don't build stronger communities and they should never be part of church life. It's obvious when something's broken. That's what Paul says. You notice Paul doesn't say, don't do these things. Although it's kind of obvious that when he says, those who do those things aren't part of the kingdom, he's making a statement, less a command, but you see the pullback. It's not as though he gave us a mess of commands. Same thing was true of the fruit of the spirit. He does not say the way to walk by the spirit is that you love, and that you're joyful, and that you're patient. Darn it, what's wrong with you people? No, what he describes is what happens when you're walking. So does that mean that if you're not seeking to be loving, you're not walking? Or that if you're not seeking to love, that you're resisting? It's hard to say. This is is one of the tensions of the text. It leaves us with a connection that we don't have as a cause. But the command was obvious. Walk. You won't do this. Keep in step. You will do this. That's the way the passage kind of unpacked itself last week. Now, did you feel the difference as we entered into chapter six? If what we had before was was what we would call an indicative, meaning it's just indicating something. It's not a command, meaning it's not telling you to do something. We're getting the opposite as we start into this, don't we? Because chapter 25, or verse 25 of chapter 5, is that final, okay, we're going to keep in step with the Spirit. If life comes through the Spirit, then wouldn't we want to walk with Him? If he's the one guarding us against all of these terrible things that can destroy churches and families and societies and us. And if life actually comes with the spirit, then doesn't it just make sense to keep in step with that wherever he goes and leads that we follow and we walk with him, we keep in step with him. That would, that would just make sense, wouldn't it? But then come the commands. Here come the texts. And as I prayed, when I'm, concerned about and I just feel this concern all the time it's not that we would not be zealous to obey it's that we would take the song that ancient hymn and that we would strip half of it apart trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey but once the obey obey passages seem to arrive, it's like all we do is obey and obey for there's no other way to be obedient in Jesus than to obey and obey. Because what you're going to hear is a whole mess of obey kind of words. And what I want to remind you is that these are, I think, these are ways of keeping in step. They don't replace keeping in step. And in fact, maybe the best way to hear them right now is to ask this broad question, am I walking with the Spirit? Let's use these commands as gauges for me of being able to measure whether I'm walking with the Spirit. Does that make sense? Good. Because what what I want to be able to tell you is I think we're going to hear four, sort of five. Uh, the last The last four and five are kind of intricately connected but what i want to try and say is that i think that these commands and our obedience to these commands indicates the kind of faith that paul has been talking about this entire time because if what we've seen is not that paul has contrasted the rules of the law with the deeds of the flesh He has said that the rules of the law, the nature of the law, the the record keeping, score keeping way of thinking about the law, the pleasing God with my obedience kind of way of of being measured by things like circumcision in their context and by a mess of other things in ours, that is contrasted with faith. It's not an illustration. And so the question is, are we trusting God? Are we walking with God? And is our faith demonstrating that kind of a walk? (coughs) Excuse me. So let's look at the first marker. I think the first marker that we're walking with God is that walking with God looks like being appreciatively humble. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. Let us not, oh, thank you. Would you recommend the coffee rather than the water? It's odd that a doctor kind of pulls that out, but I would. Either way, I think liquids were in order, so let's keep going. Do You see, right after, without any any break, any explanation, he takes these two commands, walk with the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and the next thing he says, the first thing to do, absent all the commands of stuff to avoid or stuff to put on, is this command to not be conceited. But instead... I think what is encouraged here is an appreciative humility because the way he describes conceit or arrogance is a tendency towards envy and strife, provoking and envying. This covetous kind of contention that happens when we think so highly of ourselves and so poorly of others. Or maybe to say, think so often about ourselves and so infrequently about others. Instead, those who walk with the Spirit are going to find themselves not walking in conceit, but instead walking in humility. Humility not provoking one another or envying one another, but seeing the grace of God in others and not being covetous for it, but just being, frankly, appreciative of it. Are they better than you? Are they worse than you? It doesn't matter. You see God's grace in someone else, you are appreciating it. And so it is not just being humble, it is being appreciatively humble. In fact, of these five adjectives and adverb combinations that I was putting together as I was structuring this sermon, I think it's the adverbs that really got me the most. Because it's, for me, often my gratitude and my expressions of gratitude, the fact or the absence of my being appreciative of others It's probably one of the stronger indications of whether there's humility or pride operating in my heart. Which is, if we're taking it all the way back, a good indication of whether I'm on the path with God or whether I've strayed off onto my own. So if I want to walk with Jesus, if I want to follow the spirit, keep in step with him and be on the path that Jesus walked and the spirit is helping me to walk. Then humility needs to be one of the gauges I'm using and asking Am I so conceited or am I aware of and appreciative of others? This is not tested in my life when things are going well. More often, I fail at this point when there's someone to blame and I don't want it to be me. My pride comes out when there's fault finding to be done. When there's weakness in my life, in our church, in our family, when something has gone wrong, I find this is where I stray very, very quickly. When we're doing great, when everyone is happy, when we've had a service that's just going fantastically, I I just, man, at the end of last week's service... Halfway through and we're all talking about the Lord being at work and and Beth's just once again telling me I'm just amazing and our church is amazing. I'm like, oh, Beth, I love this. It's great. That is not the measure of whether or not I'm doing well or poorly in this moment. It's the times when people have a critique. It's the times when people are pressing at a weakness and I have to stop and I have to consider Why, Lord, are you doing better things in other people's lives than you are in mine? Why are their lives seemingly so much happier than mine is? Why is there strength there and weakness here? And what's happening inside? Jesus clearly walked a path. He blazed the trail. The Holy Spirit is saying, okay, here we go. We're going to walk like the Son of God would. And yet inside me, I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I cannot go there. I can't be appreciative of what God's doing in other people's lives. I have to tear it down. I have to provoke. I have to envy because conceit is there. And if I see that, I'm very aware. I am off the path. Second thing that takes place, I think, as we move into chapter one, or chapter 6, is that walking with God more than just being appreciative, humble also becomes gently restorative. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now this is a tough one. And you can see how if I were failing at the first I'm very quickly going to stray and fail at the second, right? Because if I'm not appreciative and not humble, if I'm instead provoking, if I'm instead envying, if coveting is driving me and I'm just trying to rip others down, then I'm going to delight in the moments when I find weakness in somebody else. Because now I recognize... Oh, the problems in our marriage are Christine's fault and not mine. This is wonderful. Which 30 seconds of you watching our marriage would quickly undo that assumption. But all I need to do, right, is find weakness in somebody else and then I can blame our relational problems on them. That's so simple. But instead, if I'm actually going to walk the path that Jesus walked, and I'm actually going to walk in step with the Spirit, then the humility that I'm on the path of is going to lead me to encounter other people's weaknesses. And then my heart is going to be for their restoration, not for their condemnation. It is going to be to take what is broken and aim to be a balm that heals and fixes. Much like this original word talked about the restoration of a broken bone. I get to be a splint around you for your good rather than something that continually pokes and prods and twists and says, this shouldn't hurt. Well, it does. Why do I need to do that? Because there is context for temptation, according to Paul, for me. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. This word restoration, John Stott described this way, well, this whole context. He said, see how positive Paul's instruction is. If we detect somebody doing something wrong, we're not to stand by doing nothing on the pretext that it is none of our business and we have no wish to be involved. Nor are we to despise or condemn him in our hearts. Nor are we to report him to the minister or gossip about him to our friends in the congregation. No, we are to restore him. The second set him back on the right path. We are not told exactly how we are to restore him. Ain't that the frustration? Once again, Paul is giving us a path to walk in without specific directions exactly how to do that. Now we have other texts, Matthew 18 and others, and he kind of refers to that. We're not told exactly how we are to restore him. Just that much like Jesus called us to gain a brother in Matthew 18. We are called to restoration. But again, for me, it's the adverb that gets me. If anyone is kind of like called, maybe even by their job description to the work of restoring what's broken in the church, you would think it would be the paid pastor, right? And so, though I've used this phrase before, and this temptation inside me before, one of Christine's questions she's asked me when we're talking about stuff why does this moment make you mad rather than sad? Because if a mad pastor is coming knocking, if a mad email is coming from the church about something going on in your life, there's going to be a real moment where you're going to say, ah, uh, boy, it feels like Darren is not watching himself. It seems like there's some temptation flying around the energy Darren's bringing pastorally right now. Because this may be restoration, But it hardly feels like gentle restoration. But if instead of being upset with each other, bothered by each other, inconvenienced by each other's weakness, we come and we are broken along with it. We relate to the pain and the struggle. We feel this sense then a spirit of gentleness leads us almost in grief, in a lament for the damage of sin in your life. And a desire that just says not, oh, look at the self-righteousness coming out of my eye. Let me get that speck out of yours. But, oh, those can be so painful. I know. Can, can I help you? Because I, I, I see the pain you're in. I see the brokenness that you're dealing with right now. and I I, I want to gain you back. I want to restore you to health. And I want to be helpful if I can. I know the temptation in my heart, even as a moment like this, I've been praying and asking God to help me be gentle and help me to be humble. I I, I just see where you're at, and I, I want to help. That's what it looks like to walk with the Spirit that I be humble in comparison, that I be gentle in restoration. Martin Luther said it it this way, run to him and reaching out your hand, raise him up again. Comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. And I'd have been fine if Paul Tripp wrote that. But Martin Luther? Luther? Have you guys read Luther? There's a whole website called Insult Somebody Like Martin Luther or something like that where it just randomly takes things that Luther said about the Pope or other heretics of his days or any of his doctrinal opponents and you read the stuff that Luther wrote and you're like, whoa. Watch yourself, Luther, for you not be tempted. Because he does not seem gentle at times. And so I'm grateful that a man like Luther is writing this and speaking it to the mirror. Because this is not a personality trait. We're not talking about you do this better than others because, you know, you're this way or you're that way. Martin Luther was not the most gentle, not the most restorative, not the most comforting with sweet words, not the most maternal And yet here he is calling all of us and himself to this work together. If we're walking with the spirit, we'll walk humbly. We'll walk gently in restoration. And thirdly, if we're walking with the spirit, a walk with the spirit looks like being lovingly burdened by others. And again, I'm just going to tell you, it's the adverb that does me in on this one. Because listen to the tension in the middle of this text. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Skip ahead a couple uh, slides there. But let, verse 4, each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. You feel the tension? Bear the burden when someone is burdened. Don't take the load that someone else should carry. How about the need for wisdom right there? But have you ever met somebody who just says, anything difficult for me is something you have to deal with? That's always awkward, isn't it? Because there's a certain common sense that we have, a general uh, rule of life, that things are tough. People have responsibilities. And if you've ever worked with a coworker who didn't seem to be willing to do anything hard, but always pushed all the hard stuff onto other people, you're kind of living in the Galatians 6.5 moment. Dude, that is your load. You've got to carry it. And sometimes it can even happen within a church where we speak of things like bearing one another's burdens, forgiving each other's weaknesses and sins, being gentle, being compassionate, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And we hear those things and we think, oh, good, you have to do that to me. You have to be patient with me. You have to deal with weakness in me. You've got to be joyful even when I am a crank. And when you deal with somebody like that, you want to bring them back to Galatians 6.5 and say, um, hang on just a sec. Yes, God calls me to patience, but he doesn't call you to be the source of temptation for me. That's not exactly the way God's designing life for us. Your load Includes, includes your own need to fight sin, your own need to deal with your character weaknesses, your own need to take responsibility for your life. So we start there. So why parents want to raise up kids that aren't dependent on them the rest of their days. It's why friends want to not coddle each other, but encourage and spur one another on to love and to good works. It's, we all get this. Generally speaking, workforces are set up. The Spirit of God may not be anywhere at work in that workplace, but they get this principle. You got hired for your job. If you can't do the job, we'll find somebody else who can. Generally speaking, that's true. But notice that Paul didn't lead with that. He puts it out there like the asterisk at the end. And he also doesn't make it the command see the actual command? Bear with the burdened. Bear with the burdens of one another. Bear up one another's burdened condition. That's the command. The asterisk is verse 5. The command is there in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and he says here using language that he's just described for us in the first five chapters, fulfill the law of Christ. Oh, you said the law didn't work. No, I told you that the fruit of the Spirit basically fulfills the law. The law of Christ is something he's referred to here, right? He says, you were called to freedom. This was just in the last chapter. You were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. But the whole law is fulfilled in one le- one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just in case you're struggling, this is not like that like State Farm commercial where they bundled everything together and made it just like one word. The one word means one command. One, one instruction from the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you did that, you'd fulfill all of it. But it's not just that he calls it the law. He calls it the law of Christ. And Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you. This is what you heard read to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. Oh, that sounds great. So we invite each other to each other's houses. And we give each other great Christmas gifts. And we make sure that we do things that we can return favors for. That is not at all the way that love is described in scripture, is it? Love is described as doing for others what they won't do back for you. Pagan love, as the sixth graders I used to teach called it, was the love that gets favors in return. That's not love. This is love that you would actually care for others. And Paul then takes and says it this way You want to know if you're fulfilling Jesus' law, his one command? What do you do with the burdens of those around you? And if you look at your life and you say, I see needs and I meet them, you're halfway there. You got the adjective right. But it's the adverb that's the trouble. Isn't it easy to come and do something for somebody else and be muttering under your breath the entire time? Raking somebody else's lawn and asking them, why did you let it get to this condition? Helping somebody's life that's gotten a little bit weedy or overgrown itself, and you're asking yourself, why did you let your life get in this condition? You're bearing their burdens, but maybe we would add a different adverb to it. I'm crankily burdened. I'm bitterly burdened. I am annoyingly burdened. But that's not the way Jesus came and met us, is it? It was for joy that was set before him. It was gentle and lowly when he presented himself to others and said, if you come to me and you bring your burdens to me, you'll find rest for your soul. Because at the end of the day, I'm not bitter and cranky. I'm gentle and lowly. And if that's the path that Jesus blazed, and if that's the path that the Spirit is having us to walk, then the question we have to ask is, when I'm burdened by somebody else's weaknesses, am I asking Jesus, Lord, Over my life, am I asking the Father, Father, over my life, would you send your spirit that I might be humble, eager to restore, and willing to be burdened the way that Jesus was burdened by me? Is that my prayer going into it? If, like me, you are challenged by these section of verses, you might find a certain sense of angst over all the other stuff that comes up. That sense of superiority that you're fixing somebody else's problem. That sense of indignation that the problem still exists in the first place. Maybe even the way that you participate in conversations about somebody else's weakness Do you join your friends in condemning the weak in their lives? Gossiping about the weak in their lives? Condemning the weak in their lives? Or do you walk along and try to figure, okay, how do we burdened by it, encouraging them to bear their own load in it, how are we loving them the way that Jesus loved us? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, no, oh, he deceives himself. But at least one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Three markers so far that give us an indication of what it means if we're walking with the Spirit. And if I had to ask the question and just kind of interrupt our process right now and go back to the question we might have had last week, what does walking with the Spirit look like? Or what do I have to do to walk by the Spirit? I would just say it real simply. If you've been in this mode and you're sort of being evaluated by these, sort of, you, these, these tests and you find your score kind of coming in low, you have one simple thing to do. Pray. Confess and ask because the great thing about the command to walk with the spirit is not that we have to tell the spirit yo up off the couch we got somewhere to go let's go come on God I've got a job to do here would you lead me please and he's like oh excuse me I was so tired it's just I'm leading all these other people I didn't have time to lead you That's not the way we're going to encounter God He commands us to do what's already in keeping with his will. And so the path that Jesus walked is not something where the Holy Spirit was going, oh, that's the way we're going to lead the rest of humanity? My goodness, I didn't see that coming. There's such unity in the Godhead that the will of the Father, the obedience of the Son, and the perpetual leading of the Spirit are the will of one God. God wants us to walk these ways. And so when he reveals to us, boy, this sense of how you're burdened by others, your conceit in the face of others, your inability to engage with others whenever they're broken, this is pointing out a problem right now. We don't have to call God to get off the couch. We simply just say, Lord, I'm having trouble walking with you. Would you help me? And guess what his answer is going to be? Yes. Thanks for asking. You called because I was calling you to call. And now that you've called, let's get going. But guess where the road's going to lead you? To the burdened and to the broken. And yet somewhere in the process of you praying and you seeing your own burdens and your own wounds, God has just set this whole thing up you're going to have to call other people into your life to help you with your burdens. You're going to have to ask other people to come along and help restore you. And suddenly what we have is the Holy Spirit's leading, but which of us is leading and which of us is moving? It's kind of like Jesus with the disciples on the road. He's there and we're just kind of all trying to follow them together. I'm kind of limping Yeah, I'm kind of limping too. Well, let's help each other through this right now. Oh boy, I've been having so much trouble having patience with my kids. Would you be praying for me? Oh my goodness, I could totally pray for you on that one because oh, is, she helped me before. Why don't we go over and, and get some help from her too? And we're all just kind of a big mass of us walking along behind the Holy Spirit, trying to keep in step with them, helping each other, bearing each other's burdens, trying to remember that we all got to keep walking together. Here we are. Got a couple of quotes I'm going to skip. You know the whole, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat stuff. That's there. That's in Paul. Listen to this. This is from a a woman named Scarlett. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. She's Scarlett. She wrote on a blog called She Reads Truth, which is a great little blog, by the way. She said, something I find beautiful about today's reading, and and I I found this um, from a reading where Galatians, the text we're in, was one of four different ones that they were reading all at the same time, and she's commenting on the the similarity around those. She said, something I found beautiful about today's reading is how humble obedience, gentle love, and Christ-focused service are tied into our joy. The Bible makes a big deal about humble, holy living because we serve a God who humbled himself And bent down to carry the things we could not. It's amazing. We're broken human beings. Not capable of carrying the weight of sin. But incredibly. Jesus stooped to meet us. And died to free us. So that we. could have his power. See because that's what we're telling each other along the road. Right? It isn't. Oh I see that you're having trouble there. I'm strong. Imitate me. We're just taking Paul's words and saying, hey, just kind of walk along with me as I walk along behind him. Follow me as I follow him. We see the dangers together and let's not depend on whether you've got more power than me or I've got more power than you, but all of us have access to his power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead can bring death to life in all of us in any one of these areas we see as being a weakness in need of broken or in need of help and restoration where we're broken. Fourth thing, and fifth thing, comes in uh, 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now this is the classic tithe text. And The good news is, despite the fact that we've given you a, a, um, a budget next year that's actually where we're expecting less to be coming in, I was not coming to this verse like, all right, I get to, you know, kind of give it to the church. What's going on? Why aren't we giving? Yeah. One, I don't know if you're giving. So that's kind of a wonderful way to be able to preach this passage is to not be able to, if I'm making eye contact with any of you, you don't have to look down and be like, oh, he knows. I know nothing. I do know, though, our church is doing really well. And so when I look at this verse, and I realize that walking with God looks like being gratefully instructed, there is sort of some present tense, very specific, on-the-nose application. If this is a place where you're instructed, it makes a lot of sense that you obey the passage. I'm not saying it because the church needs money. You can tell we've got a budget that's going to be generally in the black next year. I'm doing well. None of us are starving in the Lander household. We're doing really well. Everything's good. But it seems to be an indication, like all the others, that we don't become those in the household of faith that simply just receive, 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 and don't make a mark of our appreciation the fact that we are then sharing with those who are giving. This does give an indication for why, as we build the church budget, we try to look into other, uh, you know, um, organizations within our, the shadow of our church, and realize we are we are shaded by some really good works that is going on around us. We are protected in some really big ways by other big organizations, and so we have looked to support those that are. We we try to support work overseas, but generally speaking, that doesn't. Come back to us in terms of bringing particular strength to our church. We see what's going on. We're glad to support the work going on. But when we say to Love Inc., thank you for doing what you're doing because we wouldn't know how to handle some of these situations, here, you have instructed us and you have cared for us. Here's some ways we want to help and support you financially. I, I think that we are kind of looking to verse 6 as a church and trying to do the same thing. It may be as well that with Giving Tuesday right behind us, you probably ought to think as well, not just about the local church, but if you depend on other ministries that depend on financial support, it doesn't feel particularly obedient to this verse to just ignore them whenever their needs come through. Jump on Wikipedia, I'm not talking about giving them $2.75, right? Right? I'm saying that when good organizations that you are helped and shaped by as an individual and a family are saying, we need money, that we're not looking at it and being like, nah, 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 everybody just needs money. Yeah, there are some that need money that way. But frankly, this seems to be a biblical principle. And I think that being instructed ought to have a certain sense that our gratitude is shown financially for those that are doing that work. So I think it's right for us to consider that and for me in just this context to be able to say guys thanks for doing that on the other hand if you've been around for a while in this community and you haven't been giving to the work of the church and you call this your home well have fun squaring up with the lord on that one i don't think it's right for folks to be able to be here and let the broad work of obedience in the church that's carrying us be something that individually any any group can ignore I'm not talking about everybody giving the same, not about everybody giving the same percentage. Most of that Old Testament law, we've we've misinterpreted in the past. But what Paul does call is proportional giving. When people have done well, they ought to give more. And so in a context like this, the Lord's blessed you and you haven't been contributing to the work that's been going on here. I do think it's something you ought to probably square up with. That again. If I'm making eye contact with any of you, it is absolutely incidental. So, mm, I don't know what any of you give. So, there we go. All right? Here's the interesting thing, though, that I find about the passage, which I say, it's not like that's point four and here comes point .5. 4 and 5, to me, are more like a 4A, four 4B. Four They're kind of connected to each other because the analogy of sewing seems to mean more than just where you write a check. He describes it this way. So let's, let's read it all the way through. Do not be deceived, verse 7. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Skip a slide there, Trevor. Verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Here's the question, starting in verse 6, if he's actually talking about financial support, which I think he is, is he talking about financial support all the way through verse 10? It doesn't just feel like it, does it? Because the principle of sowing and reaping is such a broad principle that it feels a little shameful even to just contain it to where your money goes. If we ask questions of other commodities that we have and how we spend them, this becomes a far more searching kind of criterion, doesn't it? Parents, how do you spend your kids? What do you sow them into? And what do you sow into them? Take your time. What are you sowing your family's time into? And what during that time are you sowing into your family? Because here's what we all do. And we all do it so much that Paul just broadly mentions this. Jesus mentions it. We mock God. You say, what are you talking about? I just sang words that honor God. The mocking that's going on here is the idea that we can somehow pull one over on God by spending our passions and our time into things and hoping for different results. I can sow the weediest of stuff, the most toxic of stuff into my kids. And I can give permission for untethered voices to do the same things into their lives. And then I'm frustrated. Oh God, I took my kids to Sunday school. Why are they not following you? God's like, did you think you were pulling one over on me? What, what are you talking about? I, s- I saw the way you planted your field. I saw the example you set with your life. I saw the way you used your words. I saw all of it. I watched you plant. Because if you send people out into a field to reap, you don't blame them if they can't come back with a good crop. And yet that's the way we treat so many things, isn't it? My goodness, look what's going on in that world. Look what's going on here. Back to the whole fruit analogy. It's it's what's the tree growing in that ultimately leads to the time of harvest. The question of harvest is a question that originates back to a question of sowing. Here's the way that John Stott again described this. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. This is a principle of order and consistency that is built into all of life, both material and moral. Do you see why I say I don't feel like all of this is just about where do we cut a check? This concept of what is contagious in my life? What seeds am I just perpetually sowing out? How am I living? What am I prioritizing? Who am I letting speak into my life, into my family's life, into my friendships? How am I spending my time? How am I spending my energy? How am I spending all of my money? You're not pulling one over on God. And if I had to say what I think we're most in danger of, it's really not the first three guys. I think I have so much evidence of humility, so much evidence of gentle restoration and loving burden carrying that goes on in our church. But we are rich Americans, and we have come up against such an entitled sense of what we deserve. We have rights, right to our own happiness. And so we think that the seeds belong to us. The field belongs to us. We can kind of do whatever we want and then throw a bow on it and ask God to bless it much like a Bible study that I had with. Uh, when I go down and hang out with my, my parents, uh, oftentimes I get to be a part of my dad's Bible study, and he's like, hey, there's a pastor in the group, so why don't you lead it? And um, and I, I try to, um, but I really enjoy the interactions with these guys. There was one guy, we uh, afterwards, um, my dad goes, I think it's to Hardee's, and he gets uh, two different types of breakfast sandwiches, brings them back, and then we pray. And uh, one time a guy prayed, and he goes, Lord, I ask that you would not let these do any damage to our bodies. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) like, that felt like a very honest prayer before we're all eating from fast food. He was just acknowledging what I'm about to put into my body could be really destructive, and so, Lord, would you prevent it from being destructive? I will say, if that's the way that we generally live our lives and lead our families, boy, we really can be in trouble. This is the one that I think we should be very prayerful about as we plan out 2024. How, as I think about this next year, do I want to plan out my life? Where do I want to spend myself? What do I want to invest into the field of my heart, into the field of my marriage, into the field of my friendships, into the field of my family, into the field of this church? What what do I want to see grow? Well, you got to work it back to them. What are we going to sow? A principle of order and consistency built into all of life, both material and moral. And if you are failing in the very request that I said in the very beginning, let's remember, this isn't a way of ranking ourselves. This is an indication of whether we're following the Lord. And if this one reveals then let's ask for help let's walk in this together and to use paul's language let's not grow weary in doing good because here's the promise in due season we will reap if we don't give up so then as we have opportunity let's do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith we're going to wrap up the book of Galatians next Sunday. It'll be our last time thinking through all that Paul's encouraged us towards. And isn't it great that after all the heady doctrine, all the work of Old Testament law and the rigors of Old Covenant versus New Covenant, what God's at work, at the end of the day, he's saying, I walked a path. I'm leading you on the path. And if you just walk with me, this is what you'll be like. I find that to be far better than anything I could create. So let's ask the Lord to do that kind of agricultural work among us. Father, where we, in this very moment, are aware I have been burdened but not lovingly, I have been restorative but not gently, I've been humble but not appreciatively. Or where we look back and we say, I've just not been humble at all. I have condemned others' weaknesses and I have mocked others' burdens. For this moment, we repent. And at the same time, Lord, we celebrate. We celebrate the hope That you are still at work in us. That the call to not grow weary comes to all of us today. No matter what our yesterdays have looked like. That we can do this. That we get to do this. Because you have not given up on us. You are continuing to lead us. And so I pray, Lord. Would we have hope and faith and joy in your work knowing that you have fruit you want to produce in us? I pray, Lord, as I prayed in the beginning, would you increase our faith that we could believe this would be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.